All right. On with the show. The show must go on. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This summer, we at ICS are exploring possible ways to connect with folks at a distance. One of these ways is through ICS's Summer Online Learning Initiative, featuring a number of ICS distance courses. So we're spending the summer talking to our senior members and course leaders about the kinds of conversations you could have if you were to take one of these courses for yourself. Today, we're joined by Dean Detloff, who will be telling us about his upcoming course called Set the Prisoners Free, Christianity and Prison Abolition. As the title suggests, this course explores the relationship between Christianity and current prison and police abolitionist movements. This will be a six-week, all-online course, taking place Tuesday and Thursday evenings from July 7th to August 13th. So here's a glimpse of Set the Prisoners Free. Here at Critical Faith, we spent the last semester inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses, to give us a sort of snapshot into the rhythm of life at ICS. For the summer, we plan to continue on this path by highlighting some of the new online courses that are taking place over the next couple of months. Today, we're joined by Dean Detloff, a sessional faculty and junior member at ICS, a Canada correspondent for America Magazine, and a wonderful colleague and friend. Starting on July 7th, on Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Dean will be teaching a six-week all-online course called Set the Prisoners Free, Christianity and Prison Abolition. So welcome, Dean. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be back. Well, we've had a lot of conversations internally about, about this particular interview, and I'm very much looking forward to it, um, where we want to talk about the course, but we 
also want to talk about the background for the course, what inspired you to, to teach it, both intellectually and personally. I know that there are some kind of existential reasons to, to, to go in this line of research and to uh, teach this course. So uh, first, we want to give you an opportunity to, to give us some of that background. So, Dean. Sure. Yeah, uh, you're right. I, I came to the topic of prison abolition in, in my academic work, for sure, and have been reading a lot about it. But I was really motivated by trying to understand my own relationship to people who have been incarcerated, uh, particularly people in my family. So I've never been arrested myself. I've never been to prison, thankfully. Uh, but a lot of my immediate family or close family members or in-laws have been incarcerated at, at various levels uh, for felonies or misdemeanors. So in my own experience, prisons and police as institutions in our society haven't exactly helped the people that I care about and love. They seem to have only really made their lives more difficult. So I wanted to learn more about why that is. You know, what are prisons? What are the police? How did they become what they are today? What are they supposed to do? What do they, in fact, do? Um, so biographically, like I've, I've never been imprisoned, as I mentioned, but because I'm in close proximity to people who have been, I felt like I needed to use the tools that I've learned in my own education to try to sort out um, not only what these institutions are, but also how to get rid of them. Thank you, Dean. And now, intellectually, um, you I know there are some, some themes that um, that you and I share in our, our research interests that, that, that feed into what you're teaching in this course and other, of the, other courses that you teach at ICS. So uh, things like liberation theology and some areas within like Christianity and Christianity self-reflection that are important for these. So any, anything that you want to highlight for us there? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, two places where both our, our research inter intersects um, and overlaps, Hector, are liberation theology, for sure. Um, you know, for people who don't know, it's a tradition in Christianity that says that uh, theology should be accountable to the people who are oppressed. And one way of saying that is that God has a preferential option for the poor. That's kind of the slogan phrase, for better or for worse. And the poor is an expansive category. It, it means economically poor, but also people who are disadvantaged in all kinds of ways. Um, and so that's kind of the Christian lens that I bring to the subjects that I choose to uh, investigate, um, and also the Christian framework that has brought me to thinking about prisons as institutions that house the poor in many ways and, and target uh, the oppressed in our society to oppress them further. So that's one side. Um, the other way that our research intersects, and I think fits into this too, is I think both of us have an interest in the stories that people tell ourselves um, about the world around us, about who we are. And we tell a lot of stories about prisons. And I think two of them, if I could just say, uh, speak to those, are, are particularly pervasive. Um, and maybe this will kind of get us on a path to talking more about what prisons are. So one story that we like to tell is that prisons are where people go when they have chosen to do something bad or wrong. Uh, it's a, a natural consequence for people's actions and their decisions. I think that story ignores how a lot of people actually end up in prison. 
you know, again, to just talk about my own experience, the people who are part of my life who have gone to jail or prison aren't bad people. Uh, and in, in most cases, actually didn't even make a bad choice, but happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or they did something that is labeled criminal, but is in fact actually harmless, like a minor drug offense in the United States, for instance. Um, some people do do things that are, you know, very bad and, and dangerous. And we can talk about that later. But I think we can't use that to ignore that prisons are not a natural consequence for wrongdoing. So the story that we tell ourselves about prisons as places that are, again, these sort of natural consequences is simply not the case. I think the second story that we tell about prisons is that they're places for rehabilitation. Uh, so people who are having a hard time or are doing bad things, they go to prison, which should, you know, harden them up or give them a place to reflect and change. Uh, but in fact, this is also a story that's not true, um, not only by experience, but also by statistics. And I'll just give you one. Um, a study by the U.S. government, uh, you know, which has a vested interest in prisons, of course, uh, they published a study in 2014 and updated it in 2019 that found that 83% of people who are incarcerated in state prisons are arrested again within nine years of being released. Now, that's a pretty staggering rate of failure if you think that prisons are places where people are being rehabilitated or becoming, you know, so-called productive members of society. Uh, prisons clearly don't make people better, uh, and they don't make us safer if, in fact, we think prisons stop crime. What they do is put people in a warehouse for a little while, and these warehouses are very abusive, and they then sort of wait for those people to return to the warehouse once they've gone. So I think it's important that we start thinking about the stories we tell about prisons, the stories we tell about people who go there, and then find out if those stories are in fact true. And that's really what the class is trying to do, to, to examine some of those stories from the perspective of liberation theology. Who are the poor and how did they uh, get wrapped up in these institutions? Thank you, Dean. Um, that is that is very interesting, and and I even though I, we we had talked about these, I had never thought it in that way of seeing seeing uh, prisons, seeing these spaces where people are segregated from the rest as um, the the place really where we uh, put together the poorest of the poor and we kind of leave them to their own devices and walk away from them as a society. It's, uh, it certainly, as you mentioned, it happens in the States, it happens in, in other places in the world. Uh, Colombia right now is facing a lot of that. I'm originally Colombian and, and there are a lot of prison riots connected to COVID, mainly because of the situation that the prisons are living within themselves, the high rate of transmission of COVID because uh, people are living in close quarters. Um, but returning to your course, um, one of the, the, the thrusts of work in your course is um, kind of attention within Christianity around the prison system. So part of the Christian ideology funds those hopes that you, were, that you were mentioning before of prisons being useful to society, but there is another thrust within Christianity that rejects that and, and signals um, what is really harmful about the prison system. So can you just walk us through those very quickly? Yeah, that's really the major premise of the class. I mean, there are so many incredibly gifted scholars of incarceration and abolition who call our attention to all kinds of things that feed into these institutions, right? Racism, 
uh, economics, politics, etc. But one thing that I think is increasingly being recognized, um, especially by some really gifted liberation theologians, is that Christianity, too, feeds into the production of these institutions. I think Christians have a tendency to see ourselves as always on the right side of things. You know, like we like to say that you can't be a Christian and be racist, for example, or we like to say that a Christian would never create something as broken and violent as a modern prison. Uh, But historically, I think that's not the case. And some of the most abusive methods in prisons have, in fact, come from Christian origins or even Christian desires to reform things that were even worse. So let me give you one of the most famous examples, which comes from the history of the Quakers. Uh, Quakers were one of the radical peace churches that emerged in the English Reformation. And because of their beliefs, the Quakers were persecuted throughout Europe, and they they were persecuted quite brutally. They often landed in, in jails, but also at the gallows or worse. And so they, like many other people, came to the United States thinking that this would be a chance to escape that persecution. Um, and horrified by the, the punishment practices of their persecutors when it came to justice and criminality, Quakers emphasized wanting to reform prisoners. And so to do this, they emphasized and created the practice of solitary confinement. Uh, The way that this is linked is in Quaker theology, all people have a divine light or divine spark inside of them. And so the idea is that if a prisoner was left alone with that light, the prisoner would be able to overcome their sins and, and be redeemed. Uh, and certainly reforming prisoners is a lot preferable to just murdering them or, or hanging them. But where the Quakers meant to replace corporal punishment with, uh, you know, um, this kind of opportunity for repentance, they in fact created a, a world of psychological torture. We know today that solitary confinement is actually incredibly destructive for people's mental health. Um, it does not encourage them to become better or encounter divine love. Uh, and if anything, it, it breaks people's spirits rather than revive. Them. So uh, I think it's important for Christians especially to reckon with the theology that we have given to the incarceration system uh, so that we can try to undo it. Thank you, Dean. Um, I w- what you were mentioning brought to mind um, the whole kind of the attitude within different strands of Christianity and within different churches about restorative practice and restorative justice as a, as a response to the punitive justice that, that incarceration really enacts. So um, it is, it's, it's fascinating to see how in some places in the world, like a place like Australia, where the incarceration is, um, is kind of massively disparate between the aboriginals and the settlers, or in New Zealand, they are trying to practice restorative justice and, and have systems that honor the Aboriginal way of, of performing reconciliation with, with the perpetrators. Um, and in those places, Christianity has um, kind of walked alongside the restorative practice exercise. But in other places in the world, like North America, a Christianity tends to go the other way uh, because of a notion of justice that that requires the person to kind of repair what has been done prior to kind of an internal reparation. But uh, just one example that, that came to mind. But all, all the issue that you're dealing with around prison system and uh, incarceration uh, is closely related to another issue that, that is very prominent in our minds these days, which is the, uh, the police, funding police or seeing police as a, and policing as a proper means of maintaining civil order and enacting justice somehow in the streets. So 
as as we bring that into connection, like your course into connection with with these reflections on 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 police, is there anything that you wanna kind of tell us or uh, anything that you wanna highlight that you've changed in the course to make it more kind of relevant to the situation that is happening right now, especially in the states? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I taught this course in January for the first time and learned a lot teaching it. And then to be teaching it again and revising the syllabus under very different kind of conditions, even though they were only really months apart, uh, I felt it was it was necessary to at least say something about the police and abolition. Uh, prison abolitionists have a lot to say about the police. It's kind of a harder conversation to have sometimes, I think, because like the prison, we take the police for granted as an institution. And again, there's all kinds of stories that we tell about what the police do. Um, that don't necessarily match up with what, in fact, police tend to do. Um, but I think the the most important thing, for me at least, is trying to reconcile where the histories of these institutions uh, kind of continue to uh, affect us today, that their origins are not accidental. So, for example, um, police forces have not always existed in every society around the world and in the same way. And so the question is, how did they come to be the way that they are in the United States and in Canada? The class focuses on Canada, too. And in both of these countries, police forces grew out of uh, lots of different things, but three uh, in particular. One is slave patrols. So there's a distinct way in which uh, slave patrols, which were you know privately hired people to discipline runaway slaves and catch them and uh, brutalize them, uh, that feeds into the uh, police as we know them today. Another is uh, strike breakers and people who were employed to um, fight workers and and be you know on the side of the ruling class and private property and that sort of thing. And the third is uh, people who hunted and um, tried to discipline indigenous peoples in this continent. So all three of these origins are actually the major streams that feed into police as institutions. They started out as loose associations or hired guns or mercenaries, but they became institutionalized over time. Um, you know. That's not to say that every police officer is like a slave catcher or something uh, in their own mind in terms of how they understand what's going on. But as an institution, uh, as we know from looking at things like systemic injustices, um, it doesn't really matter what an individual thinks. Uh, these kinds of uh, histories kind of, you know, they, they stay with us. They're very hard to get rid of. And so that's one side. There's a historical piece that I think we, we shouldn't ignore. Um, the other side is asking what police in fact do, again, just like prisons. And police, by and large, uh, they don't actually get called for the kinds of things that we imagine they get called for. If you watch a TV show like, I don't know, Law and Order or CSI or whatever it might be, you, you have this image of like detectives, you know, putting together all the pieces of a puzzle and catching the perp and putting them away. And, and that's kind of the myth that we've invented. In fact, police are usually called for things like uh, mental health crises or things like, um, you know, uh, noise complaints between neighbors, um, things that happen in society that, quite frankly, police are not really very good at solving, and they're not intended to be good at solving. These are all issues that would be much better served by having mental health care uh, more widely available, by having first responders more widely available, by building strong communities where neighbors feel encouraged to talk to one another rather than calling somebody who carries a weapon. Um, and as we know, seemingly small offenses, especially as we know in light of the murder of George Floyd, 
can end up being literally fatal, right? Uh, and that is a question that we really, really need to be facing right now. And I think it's what sparked uh, calls for things like defunding the police. Um, and I want to mention one more thing about that call, defunding, because uh, it goes with abolition. People hear the word abolition or defunding, the prefix D, as uh, we're just going to overnight kind of remove these institutions, and then that's all there is to say about it. There just won't be police and prisons. In fact, uh, and this is something that people like Angela Davis or Ruth Wilson Gilmore often emphasize, um, abolition is a profoundly creative kind of way of looking at society. What we really want to do is take the money that goes into incredibly bloated police budgets and put that into things like mental health supports. Um, just to give you one example, here in Toronto, uh, the chief of police, Mark Saunders, just uh, resigned. Um, he was being paid almost a half a million dollars every year to be the chief of police. And I think we need to ask hard questions about why we're paying uh, the chief of police half a million dollars and we can't fund, for example, public transit for free. Um, these are decisions we've made in our society to direct money in certain ways. And abolitionists say we need to build society with different priorities in mind. And as we do that, the police and, and prisons will become obsolete, as Angela Davis likes to say. They will not be necessary because we will understand that there are much better ways to address real social problems that occur. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, you mentioned some um, some figures um, that that are important in these reflections, particularly uh, around this topic of abolition or defunding police. Are there any resources that is important for us to flag and to think about or to turn to as we as we kind of look towards your course, especially given the context that we are living in right now from African-American, African-Canadian authors, from indigenous authors from either side of the border, or or like decolonial, post-colonial authors from, from across the globe um, that you can recommend to us? Yeah, there's so many people to be reading, and the literature is growing every day, which I think is a, a real positive sign. Um, I think abolition is something that has sort of caught a spirit right now, and so um, there are there's just so much kind of exploding, but there are some voices that have really established themselves as not only um, conversation starters or, you know, real authorities on the matter, but also as as organizers who are really uh, doing a lot of hard work to do lots of not only book writing, but media appearances and interviews and, you know, just going out of their way to help people understand what's really at stake here. Um, two things that are especially important in thinking about abolition are always uh, race and class. Um, those are kind of the two big issues. Some abolitionists like to think that you have to make a decision about which one is the most important. Um, I don't really feel that way. Personally, I think you kind of have to figure out how to juggle all these different ways of, uh, of, of how people get oppressed all at once. And there are a, num a handful of people who are just really uh, effective at, at making that case. And, and there are other vectors too, gender, etc. Um, but in any case, uh, two uh, people I'll mention right off the top. One is Angela Davis, who I've said a few times in this uh, conversation. She's got a fantastic short book called Our Prisons Obsolete. It's very easy to get a hold of. Um, it's like all over the internet as well, I should say, but you should buy it if you can. Um, it's a great book. It's the first book that we read in the class, um, and it lays out a case for abolition and the history of the rise of mass incarceration in probably one of the most succinct ways that I've read. So I would point people there. Um, and Angela Davis is, is all over in interviews and that sort of thing, too. So you can just put her into YouTube and get a lot of great info that way. Um, another scholar is a woman named Ruth Wilson Gilmore. She wrote a book called Golden Gulag, which is about the rise of mass incarceration 
Commission in California, and it's very, very attentive to how political economy plays into prisons and how prisons solve um, a real problem of uh, capital and capitalism. So if you're interested in kind of this big meta question about where do prisons come from, um, she's really one of the, the the best voices on it. And again, somebody who's just all over, you can hear her talking really accessibly in lots of stuff if, if books aren't your thing. Um, so those are both uh, scholars in the US, though they have a, an international dimension. Um, two in Canada that I think people really need to be paying attention to. One is Robin Maynard, who wrote a book called Policing Black Lives. Uh, it's a great history of uh, how that has happened, how policing black lives has happened in Canada from slavery to the present. Um, very gifted scholar. She's telling a story about Canada that Canadians don't often like to hear, um, but I think is for that reason all the more important. Uh, and another is Pamela Palmiter, who's a professor at Ryerson. She's a Mi'kmaq lawyer. Um, she has a book coming out this year called Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence. Um, and she's been very gifted at speaking about um, indigenous incarceration in lots of articles uh, and also about how uh, prisons function not only as ways to oppress the poor of the poor, but also as ways to threaten challenges to the unjust order that we have today. Um, so anyway, those are four very, very gifted uh, writers that I would just really encourage people to check out. Thank you, Dean. And maybe a uh, question connected to that, but not in terms of, of figures or thinkers, but maybe movements, people who are out there doing the work at the level of, of the practice that we can look towards and look up at the internet and, and read about. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are so many uh, people and lots of local people. I think if you look around, most likely you live in an area where there is a prison. And so you can certainly find people who are organizing against that, most likely where you live. Uh, but online, I think, and especially for this audience, there are a few places I would point people. One is a website called uh, ChristiansForAbolition.com. Um, it was started by a woman named Hannah Bowman, and uh, that's her whole thing. She's a, a Christian for prison abolition. She answers all your questions. What are we supposed to do with murderers? What are we supposed to do with uh, real harm that happens in our society, etc.? And she has lots of resources, too, for starting these conversations in your own churches, and she's just a, a really gifted communicator. Um, another that you might check out is Black and Pink which is a, a network of abolitionists. Um, and there's a, a real faith-based thread in it as well, um, attending also to LGBT issues in prisons, just a, another great thing. And, and they have um, pen pal programs and things if you want to figure that out. Um, and the last thing I would mention is a website called 8toabolition.com, the number 8, T-O, abolition. Um, it is a, a very, very accessible presentation of eight things people can do that would move us in an abolitionist horizon. Um, and I should mention that uh, one of the people who worked on it is a guy named Micah Herskind, who was in the January class. Um, he He's worked on abolition before that, but uh, came through the class as well. Um, so there's a at least tangential ICS connection to that project. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just fantastic resources. Um, and it'll point you in a lot of different directions too. And again, lots of uh, reasonable questions that come up that you can explore further uh, through that resource. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? 
This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what's your pleasure? My pleasure, which has become a somewhat guilty pleasure, I guess, um, is the NBA returning set for July 30th. And uh, the reason why it is a guilty pleasure is because um, it's come out in the last couple days that there are a number of players that uh, don't want to return. Originally, it was because, well, it was reported that it was because of, like, coronavirus concerns and stuff, because they're all, like, moving into Orlando and stuff, or to Disney World. Is it Disney World or land in Florida? Disney World is in Florida. I knew you'd be the expert on this issue. Yes, so Disney World, and they're going to play all their games there and whatnot. So they're going to have eight regular season games, and then they're going to do a playoff. the entire NBA... Um, is playing in Orlando? Oh, yeah. That's not the entire NBA. It's 22 teams. Oh, for like the remainder of what would have been the season? For the remainder, okay. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, anyways, in the last day or two, it's come out that there are other reasons why why players are hesitant to play. Um, and in particular... They are. It uh, has to do with um, the current momentum for uh, police abolitionist movements and the current momentum for anti-racism uh, movements and Black Lives Matter and stuff. And they feel as if setting up this platform will, will just distract people instead of actually mm-hmm. like furthering the movement. So it's a pleasure of mine. Um, but I guess I have to be conscientious in how much pleasure I take from it or the manner of the pleasure that I take from it. Yeah, so that it actually furthers my uh, development as an anti-racist instead of distracting from it. That's fair. Yeah, I feel like I think it's just hard to get your head around in the past few weeks kind of what is actually, you know, providing pleasure in your life or joy in your life my i think the pleasure that i decided on (laughs) is recently um the latest season of the tv show that rebooted uh, queer eye came out on netflix so if i'm honest that is the thing that has been giving me pleasure for the last i guess week since it's been out Mm. because it is in the realm of boundary crossing and like recognizing, you know, class and like gender issues and like people's like how people can kind of find themselves in situations in their lives where for various reasons, like they can't break out of certain aspects of it and like certain aspects of their lives are kind of keeping them back. And there's different ways in which that comes up in the show. But what has been giving me pleasure about the show is that it does tend to be a fairly hopeful kind of like look at the possibility of people's lives changing stemming from like actual deep attention to what is going on in their lives to kind of the communities and things that they find themselves in and like what they want for themselves and just like 
the kind of practical limitations that people run up against. So in in the kind of face of the the bigness of all these protests and things that are going on, seeing how kind of like face-to-face interaction can like change people's sense of self and their relationship to their conditions potentially and how like authentic engagement in that way can like make such an impact has been it, it has given me pleasure that's it for our show this week if you'd like to learn more about this course set the prisoners free christianity and prison abolition taking place from july 7th to august 13th or if you'd like to register for the course you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu you can also email our registrar elizabeth rs at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have for more from dean you can hear him and his co-host matt bernico discuss christianity and leftist politics on their podcast the Magnificast, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Danielle as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. You can follow Dean as at Dean Detloff, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Tell your friends.